You seek the key, but first you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system, up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant, with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today. Discover why critics are calling Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes the best film of the franchise. What a wonderful day! It's a jaw-dropping spectacle that demands to be seen on the biggest screen possible. I need to go. Hang on. It is our time. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Now playing only in theaters. Tickets on sale now. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show. Today on the James Altucher Show. I know people, you know people, James, who are writers, actors, creatives. They're not getting picked by the system. They're not world famous, but they're thriving. They're making a living doing the kind of work that they believe in. I call that the new renaissance. I just think it it comes down to the fact that nobody's going to believe in you until you do. And I don't think we fake it till we make it, but we do believe it till we become it. And to be clear, I don't think you have to starve. You can become what I call a thriving artist. Walt Disney, for many years, basically took every dollar that they made and they reinvested into the Walt Disney Company. And they were constantly begging for more loans from the bank. I mean, it was rough financially for years. And somebody came to Walt when things were really taking off. They wrote him a letter and they said, you're just doing this for the money. You're a sellout. And he wrote the Mecca letter and he said, no, 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 you, you misunderstand me. We don't make films to make money. We make money so that we can make more films. Mm. And I've lost the art of it. And so it, this is just my opinion, but I argue that what you want to be is not a starving artist and not a necessarily a sellout artist. You want to be a thriving artist. And that's somebody who makes money so they can make more art. I love reversing it like that real artists don't starve uh that is a great quote but it's also the title of a book by my friend jeff goins jeff welcome to the podcast thanks for having me james good to be here you know you know real artists don't starve is such an important concept and we're gonna go into every aspect of it but First two things to mention up front. One is an amazing young man has a quote on the back of your book. (laughs) And I'm just going to read that quote. Uh, Jeff puts to rest the myth of the starving artists. Artists not only deserve to be well rewarded. And I'll repeat that again. Artists not only deserve to be well rewarded, but there are more opportunities than ever for them to make it happen. This book is not only the blueprint, but it's also Jeff's personal artistic manifesto. And now it's mine, James Aldicher, author and entrepreneur. And I meant it when I say it, now it's mine because I feel when I read the book, there's so much overlap between what you're saying and the concepts of choose yourself. Yeah, agreed. I I think from an artistic point of view. Now I I kind of dive into other stuff. You know, I get into artistic entrepreneurship, but you really dive so much into the artistic side and the history of, artists as wealth builders mm-hmm. and 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 you know 
again, it is a you you t show the blueprint not by just giving the do this, do this, do this, but you show so many stories that are fascinating to me and to the reader and that I didn't know. Like I just I I'm gonna let you talk in a second, <laughs> but I'll just tell you what some of the things were that were fascinating to me. Michelangelo was worth the equivalent of forty-seven million dollars. I had no idea. Yeah, me neither. Yeah, yeah. It was. Um, I mean, that, the the book. Uh, and usually, you think of Michelangelo as just being, and you think of all those Renaissance artists as being supported by patrons, right? But they really kind of like charged for what they were worth, right? And saved that money. Yeah. So I had a friend who went to Florence, and he was like on this walking tour with this tour guide. And she was like, oh, there's Michelangelo's house. There's another house that belonged to Michelangelo. There's another house that belonged. My friend's like, what? What are you talking about? She's like, well, Michelangelo was rich. And my friend came back from Florence, Italy. And he says, and I was like getting ready to go. And he's like, you got to find this, you know, tour guide. I never found her. Uh, but I started Googling, you know, started uh, just looking up that story. And I found, you know, the same thing that you found, which is that Michelangelo was worth $47 million when he died. He was the richest artist of the Renaissance. I just started digging. I was like, that's interesting. And for years, like over coffee, at parties, I'd say, did you know that Michelangelo is the richest artist of the Renaissance? And people go, no, I didn't know that. That's interesting. That's a great way to do Have you done like a TED Talk on, on your book? No. Because uh -uh. that's a great thing to just like start with. Well, yeah. you started the book with that, but it's yeah. a great thing to... It, but, but let me ask you this though. Um, uh, of course, I, I would say artists today are divided into two categories. I mean, there's a spectrum, but... Sure. You know, there's the kind of artist who is um, n not expecting to get paid enormous amounts of money for their work. Right. And then there's a the kind of artist that we just naturally accept. And you you bring um, one of them up uh, in your book or many of them up, but like Dr. Dre is a billionaire and he's clearly an artist or right. Kanye West is clearly an artist. Beyonce's an artist. Um, Michael Jackson's an artist. Totally. But, you know, these are, are billionaires or semi-billionaires or whatever. So we kind of expect like that and it's okay for the most talented of people to become billionaires right. and, and to hold out their hand for, for money. And we don't think there's anything wrong with it. But if someone is used to, um, you know, drawing little pictures or writing books, we almost get offended if they ask for money and want to be wealthy. Yeah. Why do you think there's this dichotomy in, in um, how society categorizes artists? And that's why we're so shocked to see Michael. Michelangelo's clearly the Dr. Dre of his of time, yeah. as opposed to some struggling artists. So, but why do you think with some artists, it's like, oh yeah, that guy's charging, 10, George Lucas is charging $10 to see Star Wars in 1977. And, uh, other, and we have no problem with that, but other artists were like, whoa, why isn't this person giving this podcast away for free or right. or, or is giving away for free? Sure. Whatever. Yeah. Well, I mean, so first of all, like all those people, the Dr. Dre's and Taylor Swift's of the world, uh, the Michelangelo's all started out as that person that you're talking about, like drawing pictures and going, here, I made this thing. You know, do you want it? Will you pay me for it? But Dr. Dre always expected to get paid for it. Yes. Yeah. And so- I think like when you look at like an amateur versus a professional, uh, you can see the people who are eventually going to be professionals because as you mentioned, like from the beginning, they have a professional mindset. And so like with the Michelangelo story, I thought that was interesting, but I didn't know why it was interesting. And I didn't want it mm. to just be like an outlier story. Cause obviously he's like, yes, he was the richest artist in the Renaissance. He was arguably probably the best. Was he richer than Da Vinci? Yeah, Da Vinci was not good with his money. So Michelangelo- but he owned like a castle. He, he still wasn't like 
a poor wreck. Right, yeah. He had lots of patrons and and lived off of, you know, that that income. Michelangelo, uh, first of all, charged more than everybody else. And he um, uh, invested in properties and he was very uh, fixed on becoming an aristocrat. And the difference between Michelangelo and, say, uh, you know, starving artists of the Renaissance, because certainly there were those who weren't wealthy, um, is is the mindset. And Michelangelo grew up with a very different story from, you know, like Leonardo da Vinci. Leonardo da Vinci was an illegitimate child. Da Vinci is not his last name. He's from Da Vinci, from, you know, the town of Vinci. Uh, Michelangelo had a last name, Buonarati. And in the Renaissance, if you had a last name, that meant you were a noble person or you were of noble descent. But at the time, Michelangelo's family didn't have any wealth. They weren't well off. But there was a story that they told themselves, which is we were a noble family and we've got to return to our place of prominence. And so when Michelangelo decides to be an artist, he, which is not a bad profession, it wasn't like a penniless, uh, you know, musician, um, you know, like whatever, like the 1970s in New York, say, um, it was a decent profession. Um, but so when he becomes an artist, he decides I'm going to become an aristocrat. So what do I have to do? I have to get the wealthiest patrons. I have to get the best connections. And I have to charge enough money that I can make a living off of this. And he ends up charging, eventually, he's, he charges 10 times what his peers charge. Well, also, to be clear, he probably was 50 times better than his peers. I mean, he had spent, he had built up an incredible skill yeah. that, that that was unique and nobody in, in that area could compete with. Unless there were people competing that we don't know about that that died homeless and poor that we don't know, but I, I doubt it. Like, yeah, I think like I think the point of the book is um, you can be really great and really poor, you know. And so, talent, what's an example of that? Well, so like uh, Leonardo da Vinci is an example of that. Um, I live in Nashville, where you meet incredibly talented musicians. Like I used to play guitar and toured professionally with a band for a year. And then I moved to Nashville and I stopped calling myself a guitarist because the people waiting on me at restaurants were a hundred times as talented as I was. And so talent is sort of a prerequisite. Like you can't be bad and, and become what I call a thriving artist. But just because you're good doesn't mean you're going to be uh, you know, a thriving artist. So Michelangelo and Leonardo actually um, had a contest early in Michelangelo's career uh, where they wanted to see who could outpaint each other. Michelangelo was- a, I had no idea. Yeah, it's really interesting. Michelangelo, and I've read all about these. I had no idea that they, that they did that. Well, they were they were like frenemies. You know, and Leonardo was older than Michelangelo and by like maybe 10 years. And Michelangelo was a sculptor. Uh, Leonardo was primarily a painter, although, he, you know, he was a Renaissance man. He did a bunch of different things. He was a polymath. Uh, and Leonardo basically said sculpting is a lesser art. And he was criticizing Michelangelo. He's like, because you, you can't like sculpt the sky. With painting, you can create anything. With sculpture, you have to sort of like root it to the ground. But I'm surprised Da Vinci would say that because he was so enamored with the study of the human body. And one way to really sure. show evidence that you've studied the the human form and muscles and bones and, and, and everything is through sculpture. Right. So... Uh, Leonardo, basically, they, like they challenge each other and they have a painting contest. And, and they do it to try to win this commission. And uh, Michelangelo, has, has like he did some painting because as an artist, you, you practice with different mediums during your apprenticeship. Um, but uh, he loses the contest. Leonardo wins, he gets the commission. Because also uh, Leonardo, I mean, 
even though Leonardo explored many disciplines, his original apprenticeship was with an artist. Yeah. And that's where he kind of flourished and explored all these other things. Yeah, he started, I mean, that his primary medium was painting uh, and, and then kind of branched out into other things. So going back to the talent thing, like Michelangelo starts out at his career, yes, he's really good, but he's not the best at the time. What he is, is he has this dogged pursuit of success and not just any kind of success. Like he wants to create really great art and he wants to make a lot of money doing it. Picasso once said, I want to live like a pauper, but with plenty of money. And I think this is what most artists want like to do. Quote. Yeah, like- I feel like I feel like I live that quote. Yeah, right. Yeah, like it's like, I'm not interested in being weighed down by materialism, but I just don't want to lack for anything. And this is, I think, what most of us want. And I argue that it, that it comes down to mindset. So Michelangelo had a different mindset than a lot of artists at the time. But here's the most interesting thing about it. Um, a biographer of- uh, Michelangelo, a guy named uh, Bill Wallace, um, has studied the life of Michelangelo, written a lot of books about it. And he told me that every artist after Michelangelo um, thought and acted differently because of the precedent that he set. So Michelangelo was the richest artist of the Renaissance, and he broke the glass ceiling for what artists were able to accomplish after him. And so after him, there were lots of aristocratic and wealthy artists who followed in his footsteps. He really changed the game. And in the book, I just kind of want to argue that's what happened in the Renaissance. And then we had this romantic period where we told ourselves a different story about the story of a starving artist and why it's romantic. And this is how you create really great art. A lot of the Impressionists kind of espouse this idea. And it's not the only story that we've been telling for the past 500 years about creative success. And like you, and, and you talked about this in Choose Yourself, I just kind of looked around and I saw people creative people who are saying, I can, I can do this. You know, I can write, I can start a blog and build a fan base and reach people with my writing and I don't have to wait to get picked. And it's such an important concept. And you see, I like how you kind of go through the history of artists choosing themselves. And I hate to, um, I'm not trying to advertise my That's own exactly book. That's exactly what they're doing. You, you, you really described it in much more detail in, in, in terms of the artist. And, and one kind of common thread is that they have their art and there's, so there's the talent and then there's the skill, right? So you have talent, but then you have to build up skill and now you're, you're an artist, but then you need to also understand money and the language of money. And that doesn't mean investing. It doesn't mean focusing on money because all of these artists focus on their art, but you need to understand kind of the basics of, of what it takes to, to, to somewhat convert a skill into financial wealth. Yep. And so one thing, like you mentioned how Shakespeare, it's not like he wrote these great plays and everyone came to see them and he took a percentage of the tickets. He created the theater. He created the production company and the theater company that produced his plays. And you see that again and again, an artist will create the label. You know, Jay-Z was president of Def Jam, Russell Simmons, who was, you know, brothers or cousins or whatever with run DMC created the label. Like these guys create the environment that then pays the money. If they just, if they just subscribe to the system, the standard, you know, 40 years of a job and then retire or, or 40 years of doing your art and then, you know, getting paid pennies for it without getting the full value of it, you're going to go broke. I think in, in almost every case, these people created their own opportunities and that required a business sense as well. George Lucas didn't just write Empire Strikes Back. He 
bought Empire Strikes Back. Like he paid for it and got a better deal because of that. And and he was able to use money that he made from Star Wars, of course. Uh, so he built up. But then he created his Lucasfilm, the own the company that housed his art, as opposed to letting Fox, 20th Century Fox house his art. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, you you see this sort of thing with creative professionals throughout history who are successful. Um, they understand that it's not just skill, that they have to have some sort of business sense, and they're willing to take a little bit of risk for it. I'm not a big fan of like, go all in, go big or go home, because I've done that. Sometimes you go home, <laughs> you know? Well, well, no, and, and, and I agree with that too. Like when I, um, when I started my first company, I was working at HBO and I stayed at my full-time job for 18 months yep. before leaving for the company. You have, you know, people think entrepreneurs and artists are risk takers. Right. They're actually not. They're about reducing risk, spending a lot of time reducing risk. So, so I'll give you an example that's not in your book and he's kind of infamous in the news just in the, in the past few days. So leaving those issues aside, Louis CK was a right. comedian um, he had an opportunity to have a good career. He, he was offered the job of head writer of Conan for a half a million year. He turned it down. He went back on the road doing standup. But during that time, he, he, he very much built up as a writer. He was the head writer on three different popular, uh, comedy shows. He made a, a horrible movie, Pootie Tang. He, um, <laughs> I, I I think the movie's fun, but uh, it was the, like the worst movie ever on on Rotten Tomatoes. Um, he he perfected over a twenty year period his stand up comedy skills. He failed a TV show after TV show, but by the end of it, he was an expert at producing, directing, editing, acting, comedy, writing. Um, he knew the business side of negotiating every aspect of this, so he could take he was able to take control of his own show, Louis, which catapulted him into you know, tens of millions of success. Mm, yeah. Yeah, I, I love that. You know, I mentioned George Lucas, uh, and you see a lot of these people do this where they um, partner with a patron at some point. Michelangelo did this. They get some money, some opportunity, but then they don't stay beholden to that relationship. Key. Very yeah, they, key. they choose themselves. They So Lucas basically gets like a decent deal. Like he gets $10 million to make Star Wars, spends like $11 million to make it, and and Fox is going, what are we doing? You know, we're making this movie where one of the main characters is a giant teddy bear, referring to Chewbacca. Like, they're very scared. And I think, what was it in your book I read? Or it wasn't even the top movie of that weekend. Mm. I think Smoking yeah, did, the Bandit was That's the, right. Yeah, it, it kind of had this slow climb, and it did really well. I think it did like $750 million yeah. that year in the worldwide box office. And then they come back to the table, and Fox goes, okay, we want to give you lots of money. And uh, he, Lucas goes, no, I'm I'm going to pay for it myself, and I'm going to keep, uh, you know, all the rights to it, basically. And they negotiate it because you got to have a film, you know, you got to have distribution and stuff. And basically, he gets he retained like seventy percent of the you know film rights royalties, plus all works. the merchandise rights. Plus, uh, he he wanted all the merchandise rights, and uh, they negotiate him down to about ninety percent. That deal is almost the exact opposite of the original deal that he got, which was like twenty. He got like twenty percent of star wars and and so let me ask you this because like i'm the type of person first off a lot of people think money in today's age means you know the business of money is money so if you want to make money right. 
go in a money business, like uh, sure. go in the hedge fund business, go in the technology business and, and sell to Google, right. um, go to Wall Street. But it's just not true. Like you never saw Louis C.K. say, or, or, or any of these guys, Picasso or whoever say, well, first I've got to start a bank or a hedge fund and then I'm going to get back to right. painting or writing <laughs> yeah. or whatever. These people figured out how within the context of their art, where the money was yeah. and and how to um, not not extract it because that sounds like almost insidious, but how to make money a part of what they do. And George Lucas said that. But then when is it, like I always feel like I don't really need, like, you know, George Lucas is a billionaire. I feel to like myself, I don't need a billionaire. Maybe I have a bad mindset, but George Lucas was not afraid to say, look, I don't, I don't want just 10 million. I want a billion. Yeah. And he put his hand out. Hmm. Yeah. I, What's the mindset there? Because I think that's an important mindset. I don't think George Lucas was trying to make a billion dollars. I think at the beginning, he was trying to control his art. He wanted mm. say over what he was making and how he was going to make it. Another example would be like John Lasseter, right? John Lasseter basically gets fired from Dizzy, goes and, goes and starts working for Steve Jobs at what becomes Pixar and pitches Jobs on, hey, let's make let's make stories, you know? And Jobs is like, we're already losing money. Wait, because just to be clear, Pixar- which coincidentally, Steve Jobs had had bought from Lucasfilm from George Lucas. because yeah. it was it was basically essentially computers and software yeah. for creating animations. But he had no idea that there would be storytelling involved. It was yeah. just it was basically for 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 graphics for movies. Yeah, yeah. They had this computer, you know, and they're like, well, we could like make an actual movie with it, and uh, you know, and so he he talks him into to doing it, and Jobs puts more money that you know that he got from Apple, and he's basically quickly spending his his fortune. He doesn't work for Apple anymore, trying to get Pixar off the ground. And uh, during that time, you know, they eventually start making Toy Story and all of that. They win an Academy Award for a short film. And um, Disney comes back to Lasseter and offers to give him three times his salary, right? So that's like a pretty good deal. Like if you're just chasing the money, you would take that deal. But understand that when Lasseter left Disney, it was because he went to me and said, we're not making very good movies anymore. Right? In the 1970s, Disney movies weren't good. He said, we need to be telling better stories. We need to have better animation. Like there needs to be heart in it like there was when Walt was around. And they basically said, no, like there's no ROI there. We're just going to make good enough movies. Right, they were making, I don't know what they were making then actually, but I just remember a little later, they were making all these derivative like yeah. Barbie movies. Yep. Yeah, not like The Brave Little Toaster, I think was a movie oh, that, that kind of bombed. And Fox and the Hound was came out around that time. Like they're okay movies, but it's not like, Snow White, you know, it's not these iconic classics. And, and this is a side thing, but don't you think that even like for all our fascination with technology, don't you think, and maybe you, you think differently, that's okay. I still think Snow White is so much more beautiful a movie than Toy Story. I think Snow White is, is a classic. I think it's beautiful. I like um, any anything where you can sort of, you can feel the art. You know, they said Monet painted so that you could see the brush strokes. Like I like art where you can see the brush strokes. But, but you know, um, but Walt Disney's a fascinating story too. So clearly yeah. this guy was an artist. Like he, totally. he uh, made so many beautiful movies in the 1930s that, that are still relevant today. Like if you show them to a four-year-old, five-year-old boy or girl today, they would be like, oh my gosh. But do you know, you know, Disney started off making, actually becoming a big company not because of those movies, but because they created this this brand of Mickey Mouse. And then some guy came to them and said, hey, let me put, can I license 
Mickey Mouse and put right. it on a watch. Right. And then they sold millions of watches like in the middle of the Great Depression. And that became, you know, Disney's original source of big profits. Yeah, I love that story. And, the, and, and I think it was the same guy who like said, I want to like, I don't know if he's a watch guy or whatever, but they, there's this guy who came to Walt Disney and said, this is great. Let's create the Mickey Mouse Club. And what we will do is we'll rent out movie theaters and we will show your films, but we'll do it for kids on like Saturday mornings and parents can like drop their kids off or whatever. And, and it's a club. And, and, and this kind of catapulted the Mickey Mouse brand because you had these groups of people that were coming together. They're creating these little like scenes uh, and you know, people are getting raised on Mickey Mouse. So, so, so there's a couple, there's a couple of things here to, to unpack. And then I want to kind of get into the real blueprint for today's okay. writer, artist, creative, uh, whatever. But uh, there's first this idea that you, no matter what, you you can't avoid, if you have talent, you can't avoid developing this, you need skill. Yes. And now you might not be the most skilled person to make the most money. We see that every day in, in writing, in music, in, in art, in, in everything, but you need some skill. You also need some, not a lot, but some business skill. Walt Disney needed to know what a licensing deal looked like. Totally. George Lucas needed to know, you know, the advantages and disadvantages of merchandising. Michael Jackson needed to understand how to value the Beatles catalog, where he made the bulk of his family, now his family's money. Yeah. Um, you know, Dr. Dre understood music at such a fine level that he needed to understand the value of listening to that music. So he, he got involved in beats, which is the bulk of his wealth. Right. So so sometimes with these artists, it's not their art that, that created the wealth. It was their subtle understanding of all the nuances that allowed them to say, oh, if I turn on this spigot now, this is where the money is. Uh, uh, but, and then there's another aspect too, which is you're the average of the five people you spend your time with. So Picasso to create, Picasso obviously had the skill but he created a brand just like Disney created a brand. And with Picasso, he was able to use his brand to say, hey, let me put paintings all over your walls, Gertrude Stein, who was the center <laughs> of taste in Paris in the 20s. Right. So, uh, but now let's, the modern day artist, creative, writer, uh, there's so many opportunities to get your work out there. It's both bad and good. Bad in the sense that, um, there's not like, like if your show was picked up by NBC in, in 1989, you could create a Seinfeld. There's no more right. Seinfelds anymore. It's zero. Those numbers don't exist. Sure. Um, but it's good in the sense that there's opportunity, whether it's the 6,000 TV channels out there or the 6 million blogs or YouTube channels or Instagram. There's a, there's a lot more granularity to distri distribution has become a commodity. So, so art actually has more opportunity than ever before. So after my rant, <laughs> the floor is yours, Jeff Goins. Real artists don't <laughs> don't starve. Uh, and keep on telling great stories that I don't know about. Right? <laughs> yeah, I love the stories. I just think it's interesting. Um, I do think all of these artists, creatives, at some point they said, I'm, I'm not going to leave this to fate. I'm not going to leave it to the industry. I'm going to choose myself. I'm going to invest not just in the craft side of what I do, but also the business side. So who who else kind of, so so Disney obviously created his own movie company rather than just doing movies through right. the, the, the Hollywood system. Who else kind of create, just like Shakespeare said, I'm not gonna just do my plays for someone else. I'm gonna create my own theater company. Who else did that? 
So uh, first of all, I think the heart of this is, uh, you mentioned Walt Disney. The heart of this is not to become a rich artist. You know, I mentioned George, I don't think George Lucas was trying to become a billionaire. He was trying to control his art. John Lasseter was not trying to make the most amount of money uh, telling stories. He was trying to tell great stories. And when he went to Jobs and said, give me millions of dollars that, you know, we're already in debt, give me millions of dollars to make a film for Pixar, Jobs said, great. Just make it great. In a weird way, Jobs is like a was like a patron. Totally. It's almost like the patron system. Absolutely. But it was within this kind of, you know, uh, corporatist structure. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, so Jobs goes, just make it great. And he did, you know? And then, you know, Pixar goes on to become, you know, a billion dollar, uh, you know, uh, company very quickly. when they yeah. yeah, when they do the, the IPO, it's, you know, value, they make a billion dollars in a day, essentially. And by the way, uh, Ed Catmull's Creativity Inc. is a brilliant book. Yeah, great book. So, We're ta- telling that story. Um, another example would be Jim Henson. Mm. And- um, Puppets. Uh, yeah, so like what's cool about these, like these examples is, I don't think of these creatives in the book as sellouts, right? I think there's sort of a spectrum of starving to sell out. And no creative person wants to starve, right? We just think maybe that's what we have to do. We have to starve or suffer to make the art pure. And nobody wants to sell out, right? And I think there is this fear that once money gets factored into it, you're moving towards that sellout extreme. I remember last year I was asked to go speak at the Norway Business Summit, and I was so excited because side-by-side side with the Business Summit was the Norway Chess Summit, where I would get to see in person Magnus Carlsen, the best chess player ever, playing chess. But it was four plane rides like to get to the city that ultimately I would go to. So I really did not want to fly for 14 hours, and they, they were willing to pay for everything for me. So... I, I, at first class. So I didn't want to fly for 14 hours and not be first class. So I had to hurry up and get on the phone immediately to get those first class tickets to a chess tournament in Norway. And listen, this is just like when, you know, you have to know when you want the best of anything, you have to act quickly or someone else will get it instead. And I did not want those seats to fill up. So it's like if you're hiring for your business, you want to find the most talented people for your open roles before the competition scoops them up. I just was talking to a friend this morning where he was trying to decide between some programmers and he waited a little too long and both the programmers he was interviewing took other jobs, like great jobs. So, you know, what's the best way then to hire the best as quickly as possible? ZipRecruiter. ZipRecruiter finds qualified candidates fast. And right now you could try it for free at ziprecruiter.com slash James. Just try it and see. You'll, you'll find out. So ZipRecruiter's powerful matching technology takes center stage to identify the top talent for your roles. Immediately after you post your job, ZipRecruiter's smart technology starts showing you qualified people for it. And I know this because one time I signed up as an employee, potential employee on ZipRecruiter and I got nonstop, really, I was, even though obviously I wasn't looking for a job, I love what I do, but I just wanted to see what would happen because they were a, a, a sponsor of my podcast and the most interesting jobs would pop up in my emails like, hey, you're qualified for this or that. And so it's interesting to see. So just just go there and try it. Try ziprecruiter.com slash James. 
Amp up your hiring performance. Now, this is more for if you're hiring, but amp up your hiring performance with ZipRecruiter and find the best fast. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address right now to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Discover why critics are calling Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes, the best film of the franchise. What a wonderful day! It's a jaw-dropping spectacle that demands to be seen on the biggest screen possible. I need to go. Hang on. It is our time. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes, now playing only in theaters. Tickets on sale now. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. This episode is brought to you by AARP. Ten years from today, Lisa Schneider will trade in her office job to become the leader of a pack of dogs. As the owner of her own dog rescue, that is. A second act made possible by the reskilling courses Lisa's taking now with AARP to help make sure her income lives as long as she does. And she can finally run with the big dogs. And the small dogs, who just think they're big dogs. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Learn more at aarp.org slash skills. So, so, so be my therapist for a second. <laughs> I, when I published Choose Yourself, yeah. I self-published it. So I took ownership of what I was yeah. doing. I made like almost like a mini publishing company just to publish my own book. Right. And, but I really felt bad even asking for 99 cents for the Kindle version. Yeah. I, and I think... And I've been in the money business, but sure. somehow like I've been writing for free for years and developing my skill, but then I felt bad just that. And people even said, people even accused me of selling out, even though it was only, <laughs> oh, he's just being controversial so he can get rich off this book. Right. Believe me, you cannot get rich off of a 99 cent book. Right. And no matter how many copies it sells, if it sells sure. a million copies, you're still gonna get taxed on it and yeah, right. and it's over years and yeah. and so on. So. So I suffer from this too. Totally. Yeah, I, and I think that's normal. I think you've, if you suffer from that, you have a conscience. Mm -hmm. And so you're in the good crowd. And to be clear, I don't think you have to starve. You don't have to sell out. You can become what I call a thriving artist. Walt Disney, when he was at kind of the pinnacle of his career, and for many years, uh, they basically took every dollar that they made and they reinvested into the Walt Disney Company. And they were constantly begging for more loans from the bank. I mean, it was rough financially for years. Until the Mickey Mouse watch. Yeah. And uh, somebody came to Walt uh, when things were really taking off and they wrote him a letter and they said, you're just doing this for the money. You're a sellout. And he wrote them back a letter and he said, no, 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 no. You, you misunderstand me. Uh, we don't make films to make money. We make money so that we can make more films. Mm. So why do you charge for your book? Why do you try to whatever, monetize a podcast or something? If you're thinking like a thriving artist, you're disciplining yourself in the art of making money so that you can make more art. And it's, a, it's for me, money is the means, but never the master. And, and you see this with very successful, thriving artists. They understand if I'm getting paid, I can make more art. And I'm not saying that there aren't people out there that are just trying to capitalize. Gosh, I wanna, I'm gonna steal this and write a post about it, okay? Yeah, totally. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because I mean, for me, that's the crux of it. If I'm not making money, and for many years, I was a writer with a blog with 12 people reading it, nobody was reading it. 
uh, I wasn't making any money and that sucked. Like that, that wasn't fun, you know? And then there was a season where I was, I kind of get caught up in more opportunities and started thinking more entrepreneurially and I was writing very little, you know? And, and I, I launched this online business teaching writers how to succeed. Uh, and a friend of mine a couple of years ago said, said, oh, I'm so stressed about money and frustrated and, and I don't feel like I'm, you know, living up to my potential. He said, I think it's really interesting that you started a business so that you could be a professional writer. Cause that's what happened. I started this business. I started publishing books. I started blogging, doing all these different things, speaking, and I started making money. So I quit my job. My wife quit her job, got to stay home with our son. Like it was a really great thing. And he said, I think it's interesting that you started a business so that you could write more and now you're not writing. And I was like, oh, like the, the means has become the master, right? I'm doing it just for the money and I've lost the art of it. And so it, this is just my opinion, but I argue that what you wanna be is not a starving artist and not a necessarily a sellout artist. You wanna be a thriving artist. And that's somebody who makes money so they can make more art. I love reversing it like that. I have to keep that in mind. And I think some people listening to this should keep that in mind. Like everybody's got some something that they want to express, a story they want to express, whether it's through writing, drawing, or doodling, or acting, or something. And there's so much psychology and insecurity around it already. Yeah. And then to throw money into the mix totally. makes it very, very hard. Like people are scared to lose money. They're scared to take risks, but they're also scared to ask for money. Like, cause they think, particularly when you're beginning, you're at this point where you think, oh, I'm not, I'm not, Dr. Dre or I'm right. not JK Rowling or the Beatles. Right. Like, how can I ask for money? But I think I think asking for money is a way also of measuring how much people are gonna value and validate your art. Now there's a little bit of charisma associated with it too, like Picasso and Dr. Dre and probably William Shakespeare and Walt Disney and certainly Steve Jobs have this charisma too. Yep. Yeah, uh, which is, you can learn that, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, Shakespeare is an interesting story um, because he, um, I, don't, I don't know if he was charismatic or not. Shakespeare in Love certainly presents that he was, you know, dashing. Um, but all he did really was he saw an opportunity, which was he was a part of this company where they were kind of in this bad deal with their landlord um, where they were under this like two-year contract, um, but the, the theater was, was shut down and they couldn't put on any productions unless they're doing it this particular theater and the landlord, you know, took a cut of that. And they didn't like, like, we don't need this landlord anymore. We're putting on our own shows anymore. We're promoting the shows ourselves. Why do we need this guy? Well, and, and I, I, I'm, I'm always an interrupter. I'm sorry, Jeff, <laughs> but you will finish that story. I think there's something really important there, which is that, um, and this goes for people at nine to five jobs. This goes for many, uh, artists and writers is that there's many layers of people above you who will take part of every dollar of value you create. Right. So if you're an author for a publisher, you know, you get a tiny advance usually and the advances are going down. Yep. Um, you get maybe seven to 10% of uh, the net sale, not the, not the right. sale price you see in the bookstore, but usually about two thirds of that is what the sure. what they sold to the bookstore. Yeah. And so you will get 10% of that. Right. And out of that comes all the marketing costs and your advance. So you end up making no money on your book, but then you're, you, you know, but that uh, whole 90% or 95% that you're losing, 
goes to the assistant editor, the editor, the cover artist, the layout, the marketing, the publisher, the shareholders, yeah. the CEO of the company. So, and that happens at a nine to five job too. If you create a dollar of value, you might only end up with five cents of that dollar right. unless you take ownership somehow and not, or not even ownership, but like some kind of mental ownership of it. I don't know how to describe it. I love the word ownership. Yeah. I mean, you're taking responsibility for your own success and Shakespeare so here's what happens, right? So they've they've got this contract with this landlord and he's basically taking a cut and they're beholden to it and they can't they can't work anywhere else. You know, it's sort of like a non-compete clause. And they see a um they see a loophole in the contract. And the loophole is that the landlord owns the land, but the company owns the actual physical theater. Like they own the materials. Mm. And so one day on Christmas morning, they tear the theater down by board by board. And they and they put it. They put them on these um, carts, and they move it across town to another place, and they rebuild it somewhere else. And that becomes the now world famous Globe Theater. That is a probably the most fascinating example of a loophole I've ever heard. <laughs> <laughs> and so Shakespeare sees this right, and there's risk here. He could stay with the steady job, but he sees something happening, and it's exciting. And he says, I want a part of that. I know that I may not be guaranteed success, but the other thing that they that this new company promises anybody who joins them and basically this act of perceived theft, I mean, the reason they do it on Christmas Day is because they don't want to get stopped because they know the landlord, if he hears about it, is going to try to stop them. And so they're le they can legally do it, but it's kind of one of those things, if, they, if we see you tearing boards down, we're going to send the police and stop you because it looks like you're vandalizing it. Whereas if it's just, you know, you come back around New Year's and you go, oh, like, the theater's gone, I but, guess. But couldn't couldn't the landlord have said, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm playing yeah. the role of 15th, 16th century lawyer right now. Couldn't the landlord have said, um, anything on my land was my property? I guess, or he could have said, get off my land and you know, and I, and I keep what's on it. Um, all I know is the contract had a loophole. They tore it down on Christmas day and they offered anybody who helped them with it uh, a, a percentage of ownership of the company. And Shakespeare saw that. At the time, he was like, uh, he was writing poems. He had some patrons and stuff. He was doing different, you know, kind of piecework for different people. And this is the moment where he chose himself, where he said, I need to take ownership of my success and I want to be a part of that. And if you see people doing this today, because there's so many people, you know, uh, I know people, you know people, James, who are writers, actors, creatives. They're not getting picked by the system. They're not world famous but they're thriving. They're making a living doing the kind of work that they believe in. I call that the new renaissance. And I totally believe that. And it's this idea that you can't just do one thing, no matter how good you are, and expect someone to choose you. Right. You have to kind of get good at several things, mm. um, maybe all connected, you know, like how we describe with Louis C.K. or Dr. Dre or whatever, or Michael Jackson. Yeah. And then also have a sense of how to take ownership over it. There has to be a, a, enough business sense, at least understanding the business of your industry better, which you should, as an artist, you should understand the business of your industry better than all the non-artists because right. you don't want to be taken advantage of and you want to take advantage of the nuances you're going to see as an artist. Yeah. Yeah. It reminds me of, uh, I'm sure you've read 48 Laws of Power by Robert Greene. Yeah. I read that book and I was like, no, people aren't this way. No. And, and he basically says, you can read this book if you want to you know, acquire power or you can use it as like a, a, a playbook to defend yourself from people who will try to take advantage of you. And like, you know, I live in this like 
really great city where everybody's nice to each other. Everybody's like competitors, but they're all like collaborating with one another, helping each other, telling you know one another what they're doing. You know, hey, how, how did you sell all those books? Or how are you getting so much traffic? And it's a very collaborative community. And I was like, so like, I don't know about this, you know, Robert Greene. And, and then- Although that's a genius book. It's a great book. And then it happened, right? And, I, I, and a friend of mine basically tried to steal business from me. And I heard about it. And I was like, oh, this does happen, you know? And, and I do have to be aware of the rules of the game uh, so that I at least don't get screwed. I don't get taken advantage of. And so you may be a creative going, I don't, I don't care about money or business. I just want to make my art. And that's fine. That's good. But if you don't want to be taken advantage of by the system, you've got to understand the business. Dr. Dre is a great example of that. Uh, NWA got, like, they got no money. Most of those guys, Dre you know, and uh, Ice Cube and those guys got like very little money because they got taken thanks advantage Thanks to Paul of. Giamatti. <laughs> yeah, thanks, Paul. <laughs> you know, they, they signed a bad deal, right? And they didn't understand the business and they just wanted to make their art. But then they, you know, get to the, the end of this very influential and successful career and they have nothing to show for it. And this happened to Dre a couple of times, right? Like it goes and he starts Death Row uh, with Suge Knight. And I mean, that's kind of a nightmare too because he's, you know, uh, did Dre make any money on Death Row? No, he want, He had a fifty percent stake, and and the company was doing well. Um, yeah, because they, they did the Chronic, which was his biggest album ever. Yeah, and I mean, they signed like Snoop Dogg. I mean, they I think Tupac. Tupac they yeah. they discovered a lot of those guys, and he walked away from that um, because Suge Knight was violent, and you know, just he did. He wanted something else, and he goes and he starts Aftermath. But when he walked away from it, he was walking away from like a twenty million dollar company. He lost everything. But he understood, like, if I can't control this, if I can't own this the way that I want to own it, then I'm beholden to a system that is is not doesn't have my best interest in mind. So, so, so let me let me, let me try to um, re piece together the puzzle of the blueprint, and then I'll uh, then you could finish it. One is again, you got to build up some talent and skill. You can't be totally talentless. Although one can argue, there's probably certainly cases. Um, then I think you need to build what Scott Adams calls the talent stack, like um, find many areas in your in, under this umbrella of like art or writing or whatever where you're talented. So you're right, good at writing nonfiction, you're good at writing um, this type of thing, this type of thing, this type of thing, you, you're screenwriting. So you get you, storytelling, you get good at many skills. But then third, you need kind of a little bit of an understanding of the skill of business Fourth is figuring out what does ownership look like yeah. in in this art world. How what are the different ways that ownership happens? Like like in, in a creative way, being you know Michael Jackson kind of securitizing, you know, almost turning into a stock. The, yeah. the Beatles catalog is a very clever way of doing it. Right. And David Bowie did that with the so-called Bowie bonds, which mm -hmm. people could Google. And then finally, though, there's a faith, and this is what you're saying with Dr. Dre. You have to have a faith that your connections and skills and talent stack and understanding a business, you can take that leap and be scared for, cause you're jumping, you're jumping where there's no bridge. You're, you're, you, there used to be a bridge. Now you're jumping and hoping you'll land on the other side, but you can have that faith in your art that you'll hit the other side. Yeah. I mean, I just think it, it comes down to the fact that um, nobody's going to believe in you until you do. And I don't think we fake it till we make it, but we do believe it till we become it. 
Mm. You go back to the Michelangelo wait, 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 story. Wait, wait, wait. Believe it till we become it. Uh, let me just, uh, how is that different from fake it till you make it? Yeah. Um, so Michelangelo, uh, I think, you know, if you're faking it, you're talking about it, but you're not necessarily doing it. And we all know fakers, people who are talking about what they're doing bigger than it really is. Uh, my friend Brian Harris uh, talks about learning out loud. And, you know, and, and you do this, James, like talk about stuff, not as if you're already an expert going, here's what I learned about relationships from this relationship that, you know, fell apart. Or here's what I learned about internet marketing from this thing that worked or didn't work. And you're honestly kind of sharing what you're learning as you're going. Think it till you make well, it. Which is, is key, which is key to um, doing it. You know, like- yeah, That's right, I, you yeah, know, you know, you're doing it. I stop, I'll, 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 I'll just give you an example about this podcast. I stopped having writers on who were just writing about how you should do things mm -hmm. w when they didn't do it. So there's a lot okay. of writers out there who have academic study sure. after academic study about, right. I don't know, positivity. I'm just yeah, making something right. up. And, but they never did it or they never, maybe they're not like, you know, you can write a million books about architecture, but if you're not a great architect, you really have no business writing a book about architecture unless it's like some kind of interesting historical thing or whatever. Mm -hmm. But anyway, go go ahead. A friend of mine, uh, a comedian named Ken Davis, told me a story one time about, uh, he, he started like opening for Ray Charles back in the day. And he said he was the only person who toured with Ray who Ray didn't fire <laughs> during that like Why? summer tour because he's a perfectionist and he'd be playing piano and he'd hear somebody like play a wrong note or something and you go, you're fired. Um, and he told me a story about kind of like being at the height of his fame and career and some uh, corporation saying, hey, we want you to come and speak about leadership or something that was kind of outside of his wheelhouse. And he goes, I can, and it was a bunch of money. I can do that. He goes and he does it. And he stands up there and he does the talk and he realizes, I don't know what I'm talking about. I can, I can talk pretty, but I, but I don't know this subject. And um, he gave the money back, I, I think, and, and said, I'm never, I'm never taking a gig that I don't deserve to well, get. I, I do something differently than that. Like, let's say, because nobody knows anything, sure. right? So like if I were to be asked, talk about leadership, I've run a bunch of companies, I've been, through my books, sometimes one can consider a, a leader in some yeah. ways, but uh, I know I know nothing about pretty yes. much anything. And so what I do is I take the money and I'll do the talk, but I just will go up there and entertain for an hour. Yeah. And I'll tell whatever story, yeah. well, no matter what the title of the talk is, I will tell whatever story I want okay. to make people laugh because that's the thing people will remember. Yep. And I'll throw in some of my own story, which is a little bit inspirational and then boom, that I deserve what I, what I earned. Totally. Yeah. And I think that's honest. Mm -hmm. uh, my friend was going, you know, he, he was like, okay, I'm a leadership expert, read a bunch of books and talked about, like you talked about those academic writers talking about it as if you've done it. So believing it to become, it means you see, it's an act of faith. You see that something is possible. You have vision for it, uh, but you're not there yet. And, and you're humble about it. You know, you talked about practicing and uh, acquiring skill. You're acting like an apprentice. So when Michelangelo started his career, uh, he wasn't that good because we're all not that good when we start out. Uh, but he understood that he had to take this gig and that gig and he had to do what that, you know, master ah, artist said. That, that's an important part of the blueprint is whenever you start something you love doing, 
you're going to be bad yes. and you're going to know it yes. because you love it so much. You've already studied and appreciated the nuances of the masters yeah. and you'll realize, oh my God, I am so far, I am so many standard deviations away from mastership and it's depressing. A lot of people, 99% of people will give up mm -hmm. and he didn't. Yeah. Uh, I, you know, what's, what's that quote? A, a professional is an amateur who never quit. And I think- if you Love think like, if you think like an amateur, you're going to act like an amateur, and and so the first step is to choose yourself. It is to think like a professional, and you will be racked with all kinds of self doubt. If not, then maybe you're a faker. But if you're believing it till you become it, all that means is that you're showing up every day and you're working towards this thing that is not quite yet a reality. But you know that if you keep doing the work, eventually it will be. First off, I want to write, I just want to, I'm sorry, I want to write down that quote. What was the, the amateur? I think it was a Richard Bach quote. Um, I love I, Richard Bach, Illusions, and Jonathan Livingston Siegel, yeah, among a, my favorite books. A professional is an amateur who never quit. I love that. I, I mean, you know, you know, you've written lots of books. I think the best advice for making things is to not quit. And yeah, I mean, look, I, my first four books and then five, if you count a collection of short stories, uh, were horrible and they were never published, but I didn't, I fortunately didn't quit. Yeah. And then, and then my, I would say my first five or six published books, I would now look back and consider horrible. Mm. And fortunately I didn't quit then. Yeah. Um, and you know, I'm sure you feel the same way about your own works. I mean, they were all, to me, they're all good, but uh, I, you have a different opinion about your own stuff. I think all, everything I've done is great, James. <laughs> no, so, 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 so someone listening to this, they're, let's say um, I always pick on Procter & Gamble. So let's say they're an accountant at Procter & Gamble. Nothing wrong with Procter & Gamble. Nothing wrong with accountants. Nothing wrong with making a living and paying the mortgage. But they're sitting here and thinking, boy, you know, I felt like when I was in fifth grade, I had some talent as a writer or an, or an artist or something. There's something else I wanted to do with my life they're sitting here and listening to this and they want to know how can I get started? Is it too late for me? What What is the answer and what's the blueprint? What would you do? It's never too late. You're not done until you're dead. And um, uh, I, I think if you want to do creative work for a living, now is the best time to do that. Uh, you're absolutely right when you mention, uh, you know, get, no, there's no more Seinfelds. There's no more like three channels on TV anymore. And if you get on one of those channels, like you're good. And, and so there are challenges to that, uh, but there are also advantages to that. All I have to do is find some niche channel. It's hard for me to get on NBC. It's e e relatively easy for me to um, start a blog, start a podcast, get in front of an audience. Or or, or make Jeff TV on YouTube. Yeah. You know, I, I looked at one of my YouTube videos recently. It had, I, you know, I had never marketed it. It had 200,000 plus Jeez. views which is more than like the average cable right. TV show. Yep, yeah. Um, so now's the best time to do that. Uh, a few practical things to do are, first of all, I think you have to believe that this is possible. Even if you have to sort of like like Jedi mind trick yourself into going, okay, I don't, I don't know. Like just start thinking like a professional. And, and this is what Michelangelo did. You know, he said, okay, like I wanna be an aristocrat. My family says that we're a noble family. So I gotta start, acting like a noble person. Meaning, you know, if somebody comes to you and says, you know, here's a pittance for your work, you go, uh, no, I, I'm worth more than that. You start advocating for yourself. I know so many creatives who just keep giving their work away for free. How do you, how do you get that mindset? Because I think that's really hard. 
I think you have to practice it. I think any mindset, any healthy mindset uh, is a discipline. Because we, we there, there's been books, you know, um, Chris Anderson wrote about freemium. Yeah. And, uh, and our, our mutual friend, Charlie Hohn, who's been on this podcast, yeah. has, has written about the power of initially doing something for free when you're starting. Yeah. So at some point, you you have when you're an apprentice, you have to give a lot, a, an enormous amount for free. And when do you learn to make the switch? I think you always work for something. You never work for free in the sense that you're doing stuff for some opportunity and you don't know like what it's going to lead to. I mean, I do this podcast for free. Right, We, yeah. we get ads, but we didn't get ads for years. My so. blog is free, you know? Yeah. Uh, I do lots of things. I'm doing this for free. You didn't pay me. Um, but I think you have to always work for something. And that something is up to you, but you have to place a value on it. So mm. when an artist is apprenticing, and by the way, in the Renaissance, artists apprentice for seven to 10 years. So when you talk about practice and talk about getting good, because we live in this age of like instant expertise. Like I, I launched mm. a blog, something went viral. So now, I'm, you know, I got a book deal and now I'm an expert. When in reality, you may not be. So, so instant expertise is kind of um, the goal of the amateur, but not the goal of the pro. That's right. Yeah. I mean, I think the goal of the professional is I want to be doing this for a lifetime. Mm -hmm -hmm. I want to make a career out of this. I don't just, I don't just want to hit. I want a catalog. I want a body of work. I, lo I love that mindset. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's how I think. I'm thinking of like each book, each thing that I do is a portfolio. So when you're apprenticing, it's part of the portfolio. When you're apprenticing, you are working for free, but you're not working for free. You're working for an incredible opportunity to get an education that like you would pay for. Right? I mean, you think about like going to university, you pay for education. Being an apprentice, you typically didn't get paid, uh, but you got room and board and you got this incredible experience. So, so like for instance, and this was explained to me um, in the context of stand-up comedy. So, so I've been doing it for two years, but yeah. let's say a year somewhat obsessively, like three to six times a week. Wow. And um, I was talking to a guy who's been doing it for 20 years and he gave me one piece of advice because I was a little bit nervous one night and we were sitting outside, both about to go up. Uh, and he said to me, you have to understand that you've been doing this for two years. Mm -hmm. You know more than every single person in the audience about comedy. Nobody has the right to not tell you something is funny yeah. at this point. Yeah. So you, you have to build up this expertise, but, but, but then you start getting it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's great. And I mean, just because you're good at something doesn't mean you're going to get paid for it. And I think always valuing your work forces you to think in every situation. So, you, you know, if you're doing a gig for free or you're going on a podcast or you're meeting somebody for coffee, uh, not in like a um, like mean, like bad coercive way. We're trying to always get something out of somebody. But if, if this is a business opportunity and Stephen Pressfield wrote a great blog post one time called Opportunities Are BS. And he basically said, look, every opportunity that's come my way where I had to do work for free essentially led to nothing. And oh, I'm yeah. And I'm and sure I there are those things that lead to something. Uh, but what did you, uh, you said this in Choose Yourself. You said, um, uh, like, no meeting I've ever been a part of has, like, led to money. Yeah. Know, no meetings lead to money. And, and and partnerships don't lead to money. Yeah. Like, oh, partner with us. We'll sell your <laughs> services right. with our services. Yeah. They're just trying to sell their services. Yeah. And by the way, we're backed also by these guys. You know, yeah. we have these guys behind us, but nobody asks for, yeah. for that. So know what you're doing it for. And at the beginning, you're probably not going to be doing it for cash, but maybe you do a speaking gig because you're going to ask that event planner for three referrals, right? Maybe you're doing stand-up comedy because you're just trying to get better or you're speaking in that particular club, that particular night, because you know some other comedian is going to be there that you want to connect with. 
always work for something. But understand that like you get what you ask for. You don't get what you deserve. I was at a speaking gig mm, mm. Uh, years ago. I was speaking at this conference with like 15,000 people. What and, conference? And, Jesus. Yeah, it was a human resource conference. Just, and There's that many human resource people that are going to go to a conference? Dude, and they like to party. <laughs> I mean, keep in mind, like your well, job. Human resources. Your job is to listen to people's problems all day long, and then they give about you about sexual harassment. Yeah, and they give you a conference where all of your peers are the only people in the world that understand you. Like even your spouse doesn't understand you have that job. They put fifteen thousand of you in a hotel in Vegas for a weekend. It's nuts. And you know, human resources, <laughs> they're worse than dentists because <laughs> because if you, if, let's say let's say my boss calls me into a meeting and then uh, the, the human resources person is sitting right next to him, the only emotion I'm going to have is yeah. like, oh my God, yeah. my life is over. Totally. Like with the dentist, you know what you, you go to the dentist's office because you're already in pain and yeah. it's going to be in worse pain for a little while, but then you're going to get better. If that human resources person <laughs> is there and they know it, and it's usually a she, uh, yeah. she knows it. You're just dead right then. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I was at this. I was at this. Um, uh, I was. I was at this uh, event, and I spoke, and it, and it was a great paying event. I got an honorarium. This is at the time the highest honorarium I'd ever gotten. Can I ask what it was? Yeah, it's fifteen thousand dollars. And I was like, wow, like I'm a legit speaker now, you know. And uh, did the talk, and it went fine. Like corporate gigs are not, you know, uh, always my favorite. Um, and then afterwards, I'm signing books and I'm next to this guy and there's 150 speakers there. Dr. Oz was there and all these people were there. And uh, I'm like doing the math and I'm going, man, like how do they afford to pay all these people? And I guess, you know, big budget, lots of, you know, huge sponsors and stuff, but you know, whatever. So I'm signing books and I'm next to this guy who's like a lawyer and he is, he did the same kind of talk as I did, same length of session, same size of room. And we're just talking and I go like, and he'd been there like six years in a row. And I was like, hey, how do I get invited back to this? this? Is the best, you know, paid speaking gig I had at the time. And so I was like, how do I get back here? And he says, well, you know, reviews really matter and you've got to do this and got to do that. And, uh, you know, I just get great reviews and they keep inviting me back. And I said, wow, okay, great. Like, I'm going to do that. Thanks so much. And he goes, you know, well, you know, because they don't pay you. And I was like, oh, huh, okay. <laughs> he just like saw to my face and he goes, they pay I go, uh-huh. <laughs> and he's like, oh, okay. Do you have a speaker's bureau? I was like, yeah. He's like, oh, well, that explains it. And he was doing it for free, same job. And he was doing it, he was getting like lead gen for like his company where he like teaches companies how to like not get defrauded or whatever, like fraud protection. And I, like, I was like, oh, you know, you have not because you ask not. And um, yeah, so I mean, like understanding that what you do has value and your job is to value it, not at a certain point in your career, James, right now. And you know, there's something important in that. Like I felt guilty when I started accepting ads on this podcast. Sure. And I remember I had Derek Sivers on the podcast the, the very first time I knew there was going to be ads on, on that podcast. Yeah. And Derek Sivers even said, you know why yours is the only podcast I'm ever going to go on? Because you don't have ads. And I'm thinking, <laughs> and I'm thinking to myself, you know what? It's going to change with this podcast. <laughs> but then I thought to myself, you know, having ads on in a weird way legitimizes the podcast. It kind yeah. of signals to the world, oh, this guy has now enough downloads, enough legitimacy that we want to we value his audience, so we want to pay to be a part of this experience he's having. Yeah, people don't value your stuff until you do. And so how you value that, uh, how you monetize it, um, that's up to you. 
But if you go through life going, well, this doesn't have any value or I'm always gonna be struggling, you know, doing this, that's gonna keep coming true. So 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 again, um, you know, I I asked you, how do you how do you get this mindset? It's really just a matter of just kind of repeating it to yourself, the wisdom of it. You kind of have to repeat it over and over again that if you feel like you don't deserve it, you probably don't deserve it. If you feel like you deserve it, you probably do deserve it. <laughs> yeah, and like be honest, right? So um, when you write a blog post and nobody reads, reads it, like you're upset. Yeah. Why are you upset? Probably because deep down you think like your ideas deserve to be heard. And I remember struggling with that. Like deep down I felt that way when I started writing. I was like, this is like really narcissistic to think like the world cares about what I have to say. Yeah, you have to have ego. You have to have a healthy narcissism uh, to be a writer. <laughs> narcissism isn't always negative. Every every child, do you, have right. ch- you have children. Of course. Every yeah. child has to be a little bit of a narcissist or they'll be dead. Right. <laughs> they have to say, I need food now over everyone else. Right, yeah, I'm special. I'm the most important person in this orbit, right? And as you get older, you realize that's not always true. Um, it isn't? <laughs> and I think, yeah, I mean, I think art is going back to a childlike but not childish kind of mindset where you go, I'm special. I have something to say. I have something unique to share. And that's not a bad thing. And it's my job to find a way to share it. And it's my job to eventually get paid to do it so that I can keep sharing it and reach more people because it's important. So so again, sitting in the cubicle, I'm listening to this. It's great for these guys to say that. Jeff's written, you know, five, six, seven books. How many books have you written? Five. Five. Uh, he speaks everywhere. He had a business. James has written all these books. He's done all these things. What can I do right now? I'm, I'm 49 years old. I got six years left on the mortgage. Mm. I've got four kids I'm going to spend on going to some crappy school. What do I, what do, I do next? I think you need to- But um, I love writing. Yeah, practice in public. Start a daily mm, practice, practice of sharing one thing with the world. Mm. Good, bad, ugly. We were talking mm. about- you know, your past book sort of embarrassing you. And, and I'm the same way. I was, you know, joking. Uh, but I talked to this novelist one time who's written 20, 30 best-selling oh. books, uh, a guy named Ted Decker, uh, who has sold like 11 million copies of his books, right? Um, writes thriller books. So like very successful author, right? And he, he goes into bookstores and he sees the books on the shelves and he wants to tear them, his books, he wants to tear them off the shelves because he's embarrassed of them. And the only thing that's preventing him from doing that is... He goes, these are my diaries. These are a snapshot of who I was and the way I thought the world worked. And these are novels, right? But this this is a picture of who I was at that time. And I can't disparage that because who I was then led to who I am now. Oh, I love this. You're giving me an idea for a blog post. (laughs) Anne Lamott (laughs) says, I am all the ages I've ever been. And so your past work is sort of a reminder of your journey. The way that you get started is you you start practicing, but I think the best kind of practice, and comedians know this better than anybody, is practicing in public. You cannot get better at comedy, I will tell you this, without going on a stage. Yeah, yeah same thing with music. Uh, I played guitar for six years in my basement with my friends, plucking away, learning you know, Metallica, Nirvana. And, and you must have had talent. To keep doing it for six years, you had to have started with talent. I, I was I was good. Uh, you know, my dad played guitar. He taught me, you know, at an early age. It was fun for me. But I, I thought, like, I'll never be great. Like, I just, I was like, I'll just never be that great. And then I joined a band and I toured the country for a year. 
we 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 had a little stint in Taiwan. We were we were big in Taiwan. Did you have fans? James. Did you make money? Um, <laughs> we made eight thousand dollars that year. So, <laughs> but like the fans, what was the name of your band? Uh, it, so it was called uh, uh, CTI fourteen twenty one. Oh no wonder you're terrible. <laughs> that's that's the worst name I've ever heard. So, but were people in Taiwan like CT fourteen twenty one? Yeah, headlining in Taiwan. Uh, people thought we were amazing because we were a Western band and they just thought it was so cool. Uh, the point of it is, I play—I mean, I played five to 10 shows a week. It was a, more more music than I'd ever played before. And I did not practice other than those shows, just performing. We just performed constantly. By the end of that year, I was playing guitar in a way that I never thought was possible. Well, that's kind of like Malcolm Gladwell's description of the Beatles in Germany. Yeah, you're so. just practicing so much that it becomes intuitive. Practicing but, in public is so important. Yeah. Blogging is practicing in public. Podcasting is practicing in public. Public speaking is practicing in public. And yeah, you want to like develop your talent a little bit before you get on stage, obviously. But you have to bomb. Like you have to do it badly before you can do it well. And practicing in public shortens that feedback loop. And Stephen Colbert has a great quote about this. He wrote for um, Vanity Fair an article about it. Uh you have to enjoy the bomb while it's happening. Love that. So a lot of people say, oh, if you fail, look back at it later and analyze right. it. it. It's so it's it's even that much more powerful to in, to attempt to enjoy it while it's happening. Right. I don't know why actually he said that, because I don't think I'm at that level of understanding, but I'm trying to figure that out. That's like my current goal. Yeah, well, what is Robin Williams? I think it's Robin Williams. Uh said, so, you know, basically. Uh, you're dying up there. Uh, and, and, and I mean, that's how it feels. You're literally- if it That's Robin Williams, the, maybe the best comedian in history. You're dying. You know, it, it's a form of, I mean, comedy especially is vulnerability, it's sacrifice. Uh, I like what Chris Rock does where I think he enjoys the bomb. And you write about this in, in your book. Yeah. Um, so what he does, I think is super interesting is if he's got new material for like a tour or something, uh, he goes to a bunch of crappy small comedy clubs uh, near where he lives. And he just, he'll show up unannounced and he's Chris Rock, so they'll let him on stage. And he, he shows up, sits on a stool, pulls out a legal pad and just reads the jokes. Well, what's great about that is that he's not performing them yeah. is that he knows with perfor his performance abilities are enough to make almost anything funny. Exactly. So he wants to uh, use the, the bomb as a filter to say what's not funny if you don't add in his performance ability. Exactly. He's testing the joke itself not him, right? Mm -hmm. His because he because he's a master communicator, master comedian, and so he just reads these jokes, and people sometimes don't laugh. Often they don't laugh. They walk out. You know, they're sort of offended, and and that's okay. And he does this week after week after week, trying to find out what new material is worth kind of working into his rep. So so now so so okay, we're 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 back to the guy or 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 lady listening to this. Yes. Um, you know, practice in public, get better. Uh, but now how do they start, you know, making money as an artist? I think um, there's there's lots of layers to this. Uh, I think start practicing in public and that's super important. You'll start building an audience, start building fans that way. Uh, then I think um, joining some kind of scene, becoming part mm -hmm. of either an online or even better in-person uh collaboration, like be around other people who are doing what you do. Like it's easier to do what I do because in Nashville, there's this small but really connected community of writers, artists, entrepreneurs who are all kind of helping each other. 
uh, lots of opportunities and scenes in New York City, LA. Uh, but I believe like every place has some kind of scene. And if you can't find it there, like connect with some people online. I think this is critically important, by the way. Some of this is um, charisma, again, to to be able to quickly join and rise up in that subculture. Yeah. So anything, any kind of art has a subculture that's yep. uh, built around that art, you know, and it's alpha to omega, like any other tribe or yeah. culture. But uh, I think, again, you're the average of the five people around you. There's yeah. so much you can learn from the people who are aspiring in the way you are. And I think, I mean, I don't know what you think about this, James, but like charisma, uh, I think can be acquired. Like I was really bad at asking girls out when I hadn't dated any girls. And I got better at asking girls out. The more I did it, the more I realized how to talk to women and how to look them in the face and try to make sure my voice didn't crack. And, and I got better at it. I don't think I ever got great at it, but like I was able to eventually get a girl to say yes. And I immediately married her because I didn't want to go through that again. I don't, your charisma was going to go straight <laughs> down after that. Who knows? Yeah, right. You know, so, I mean, I think it can be acquired. Like, I don't think I was uh, the most charismatic person, you know, living in Nashville, uh, but I knew that like, I was pretty good at writing emails. And so I would like meet people via email that, you know, we're going to be at a conference together or something. And I just email them ahead of time and say, hey, can I buy you coffee? And I do think that this scene- But this buying the coffee, that's what people are, say no to. You have to give reasons why you're buying them a coffee. Yep. You, have to, you have to offer value. Yeah. So what I do is, is called the case study strategy. And I think, I think it's one of the best ways to do it is you reach out to an influencer, somebody that you admire, and you say, dear so-and-so, thanks for X, something that you've created, this podcast, this book, whatever. It helped me do Y. Save my marriage, um, you know, gave me an extra 20 years on my life, made me a bunch of money, whatever. Um, so, so it's like a what you did for me. Yeah, here's what you did for me. Here's how I applied it. I am your case study. Uh, I, I know you love hearing stories like this, yeah. James, from your books, from your podcast. You share these stories with your audience. It's really exciting. You're, you're going, hey, this stuff actually works. I'm not just talking to myself here. Any creator has, I don't care how big of a deal they are, they have some latent fear, some subconscious belief that what they're doing doesn't really matter. Nobody cares about it. And so if you can be one of those people that says, it matters, not, hey, this changed my life, because that's too broad. People say, oh, your book changed my life. How? What did you do? Like you're grilling me while, we're me like, while I'm going, hey, my friend, so-and-so, what's their name? How many books did they sell? How much did you make? Like you want specifics. And I love that. And when you're reaching out to somebody who's influenced you, um, do this 10 times with... Um, 10 people that you don't know and, and say, hey, you help me do this. I'm going to be in town or I'd love to, you know, meet you sometime. No pressure. Just wanted to say thanks. Somebody will say yes. And yes, people are busy. Don't take it personal if they can't meet with you. But that's what I started doing. I started reaching out to people that I admired, that I had learned from. And a lot of these people are my friends now. And I think uh, it's because I said, hey, I'm teachable. I don't know everything. I'm not trying to impress you. But I'll like when we meet, I'll do whatever you say. Like I'll listen to the advice. I'll, I'll add to it that I think the case study thing is good. I think also say so. What you did for me is a good way to, to think to say what I can do for you is also equally good. Yeah, absolutely. And both should happen. Yeah, and and never and you never should say what can I do for you. Yeah, because then you're giving so them awkward. homework to do. Well, and it's like if I go to James, you know, what can I do for you? That puts you in a weird position where now you've got to ask for something that and it like makes you feel selfish versus me going, hey, I just, I did this thing. I hope it helps. 
Okay, so this is all great advice for the aspiring artist uh, who who wants to make a living doing what they're doing. You know, practice in public, find the scene. You kind of find mentors by doing going to conferences, buying the coffee. What did you do for me? Having a healthy narcissism that gives you permission to practice in public. In terms of assigning value, try all sorts of things. But the important thing is there is value to what you do and trust yourself on that. And what's like a final piece of advice? What would you say to someone who just wants to get started tomorrow? I mean, you need to start charging for your work. But even doing work, like they're not, they've been doing accounting for 30 years. Yeah, make stuff like make stuff that you can sell, practice in public. And over time, that will turn into something. When John Grisham was a lawyer, like he he was mm-hmm. a lawyer and a new dad. And he thought, maybe I could write a novel. And yeah, he didn't, he wasn't a writer before then. No. And, he was and, a state legislator, actually, I think, before then. Yeah. And, and they're like, busy guy, right? Lawyer and a dad, new dad. So, like, not a lot of free time. But he just had this curiosity about Got it. Got rejected everywhere. Yeah. So, the way he starts is he goes, I'm going to write a page a day. Gets up a little bit early, uh, you know, kisses his wife and kids goodbye, goes to the office and writes one page per day. Takes him a few years to finish A Time to Kill gets rejected by a bunch of publishers, gets picked up by some small publisher, doesn't do well. Uh, I think he, it sold like 2,000 copies. He bought 1,000 of those copies and sold them himself, mm. uh, choosing yourself kind of thing. Mm. Uh, said, hey, that was fun. I did it. I can't believe I did it. I'm gonna keep doing it. Again, you know, what were his ambitions or aspirations at the time? He was enjoying bombing. He was enjoying the work. He was practicing every day and then he was sharing that work. Uh, and then eventually, you know, the second book that came out, this is, you know, four years in the making, um, was the firm, and he was able to sell that again. Got a lot of rejections, uh, and that became a. Did that know, get a lot of rejections? The firm, I think so. Yeah. yeah. And then, how does someone like that, or in general, uh, uh, we talked about this idea of of taking ownership over your work, so you could then start charging more, and and really like Michelangelo, like Shakespeare, like Michael Jackson, George Lucas. These are these artists who we expect them to make money as an artist now. We would never accuse them of selling out, but in part it's because they took this risk, they took ownership of their work. Where does that come in? And, and I think that's the real key to thriving. Yeah, I mean, I think, it, like thinking of it like a portfolio. So uh, I want to own the work, and from the beginning, you're going to own all the work, right? Like, because nobody's going to be wanting to acquire you or right. you know buy stuff from you. And the point is you want to control the process as much as you can. Uh, but it sometimes makes sense to sell your book to a publisher or to work with Fox to help you distribute your film so you can reach more sure, people. Sure, I'm not I'm not 100% for ownership. Sure. I, I think having the mindset of ownership is almost as important, in, in some cases more important than ownership. So, so you have a career, you have your life that you own that can go in many directions. Sure. You're just not going to outsource it to Fox. Exactly, yeah. So, I mean, I think it comes down to the job of the artist is to do great work. And and owning your work and owning the majority of your work is the best way for you to control the quality of it. And, and I think along with that, the way you own your work is by getting good at all the skills. So when you're playing guitar, doesn't also hurt for you to take singing lessons. It doesn't help for you to understand how ticketing and touring works. It doesn't help for you to understand how, you know, events get booked and that's how eventually you become a speaker that gets booked why you got paid and the lawyer didn't yeah. you know so so all so so think of that as this weird ancillary side effect of going on tour with a band is that you got paid 15,000 to speak in a room full of human resource professionals yeah. like you were a, you were a touring artist at right. that point yeah. so um 
Jeff, this is really great stuff. I really want to um, tout your book because I've read it, you know, I re well, I read the original when I put the blurb, then I've read it twice since it's come out, but real artists don't starve. Uh, you're doing amazingly well on Amazon. I think on the Kindle, you're still ranked top 500 books in the entire uh, Amazon store, which is amazing given that it's, you know, your book came out many months ago. Your other books I want to also recommend, particularly your most recent ones, which is The Art of Work and You Are a Writer. You wrote The In-Between and Wrecked and... That's your five. Uh, but The Art of Work, You Are a Writer, also great books. I have to read the first two. But Real Artists Don't Starve really is, I think, a blueprint for success. There's so many fascinating stories that I didn't even know about. Oh, we'll conclude with this. I didn't know about Led Zeppelin IV. And I'm Led Zeppelin's biggest fan. Isn't that incredible? So Led Zeppelin IV, you're telling me, they put that out secretly, like without saying it was Led Zeppelin? Well, like if you, I didn't pull, know that. If you pull out Led Zeppelin IV, the name Led Zeppelin is not on the record anywhere. It's not on the back. That's the blimp one? Uh, that's the first one. That's Led Zeppelin. Oh. Uh, Led Zeppelin, Led Zeppelin. That's one. The, uh -huh. Their first four records are basically called one, two, three, four. Because uh, they're they're not, they don't have names. Um, and so Led Zeppelin 4, which is sometimes called Zoso, um, they don't even have their, their, like, they don't have, like, Jimmy Page and, you know, John, uh, Paul Jones and John Bonham, uh, you know, and Robert Plant on the back, they have these symbols. Like they made up these symbols for their names. So there's, there's like, there's no way that you know this is a Led Zeppelin record. And and they went to their uh, record company and said, we want to put this out because people are attacking our reputation. Because you have to understand at this time, Led Zeppelin was bigger than the Beatles. Like they, they were performing for audiences larger than and like they're the largest touring act of all time well, I ever. Think, I think, I mean, I like all sorts of music as as evidenced by many of the musical guests on my um, podcast, but Led Zeppelin, it's hard to find one bad song. They're so talented. They're, I mean, they're all kind of like, each person was a rock star in their own right. Anyway, so th the story is they went to their you know, record company and said, we want to prove them that, that we're as good as we say we are. And, and so we're, we're going to release this album anonymously. We're not going to put our name on it. And they're like, you're kidding. And, and they said, no, that's what we're going to do. And, and eventually they went for it. I mean, it would be like Lady Gaga or Taylor Swift who just had a you know record come out, like not putting her face. Or well, J.K. Rowling did that with the, the Cougar's Nest with her first mystery novel. Mm -hmm. And it was it got good reviews and some success. And she sort of proved it to herself. And then she finally said, it's me. And yeah. then it hit, hit and then number it one. Crazy. But, but, but it, it, with music at that time, how did they get radio play? So what's interesting about that story is... Um, they didn't market it, but they kind of did. And, and this is a lesson of practicing in public. Um, and so uh, the, the record comes out, and, and there's, a, there's a concept uh, called mystique marketing that sort of explains how this works. Uh, I don't know if they got radio play initially, but they put a bunch of you know, those records in the record store, and, and they marketed it two ways. One was sort of with the mystique marketing. So if you find... Uh, a record, you know, you, you find a record in a record store and you go, oh, this looks interesting. I, I guess I'll listen to it. And then, you know, and you buy it and you go, oh my God, this is, this is Led Zeppelin. They have a new record. This is Led, I don't, you know, like, what are you going to do? You're going to tell all your friends because you just discovered a secret. Wait, like I'm not, I don't have to tell anybody about Taylor Swift's new album. But now Mystique marketing is something that's going to only work if, after you already have enough after you already credibility have to have Mystique. Yeah. That's right. And the other thing they did is they kept teasing their audience at shows and they said, we have a new record out you got to go find it. Mm. And so that's the rule of the audience that um, if you don't have an audience, helping your creative work spread is so much harder. 
And these days we have no excuse to not build an audience for our art because it's free and it's easy to do. You just have to develop that habit of practicing in public. Well, uh, Jeff, you've given so much advice. Your book is a really great read because there's so many stories like this. Plus again, it's a, a blueprint how to go from, I, I really think it's how to go from the cubicle to artist to thriving artist. Mm. I highly recommend it. Uh, uh, thanks once again for, for coming on my podcast. What's, what's the next book we can expect from you? I don't know. Uh, good question. I uh, I have a friend who says that. Um, How about real artists get rich? <laughs> you know, not only do they not starve, yeah. but they get rich. Sounds great. I'll do that. <laughs> All right. Thanks a lot, Jeff. Thanks, James. Meet Gail. Her thing is being a supermom, and supermom has a lot on her supersized plate. <laughs> Ain't that the truth. But at Walmart Pharmacy, Supermom recently got her whole family updated on all their vaccines. We knocked it out during a grocery run. No appointment. That's Next Level Supermom. From pneumonia to shingles, HPV, and more, get no-cost vaccinations from an expert pharmacist where you already shop. Welcome to an easier pharmacy. Welcome to your Walmart. $0 copay with most insurances. State age and health restrictions may apply.